It's Muppeturgy, and it's time for a very problematic episode about the Rudolph Nureyev episode of The Muppet Show. I don't know if our episode will be problematic, but I think, well, you'll see. To be determined. No, no promises. <laughs> anyway, hi everyone, welcome or welcome back. I'm David Levy, here with me today are... Christy Bauer. Michal Richardson. Adam Grossworth. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. This is the most minor of corrections, but, you know, we are pedants here. In the Madeline Kahn episode, I thought I spotted Ma Otter in the audience, but then in a subsequent episode, Miss Mousy got a feature, and I realized that that had been Miss Mousy in the audience. We regret the error. This week, we are talking about Season 2, Episode 13. It was produced the week of October 18th, 1977. And it aired in New York on January 23rd, 1978, and the same week in the UK. It was episode 14 in the air order, uh, right between Zero Mistel and Judy Collins. Tonight's NBC movie opposite football was The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, starring Betty Davis in a TV movie. Okay. On CBS, following The Muppet Show in most markets, You're a Good Sport, Charlie Brown which was a rerun, so it, it aired more than once, but I have fully never heard of this. Oh, we had that. I think really? we had the VHS of it. Well, after the football one, I'm definitely not going to watch this, but Charlie is talked into entering a charity motocross race, is the TV Guide description. He's like, where's uh, a pumpkin for a helmet? I'll take your word for it. Uh, that was followed by Ricky Tiki Tavi, also a rerun. And uh, over on ABC, Roots One Year Later, a documentary about the impact of Roots. One year later. The question is, are you going to find out what the dark secret of Harvest Home is? I actually might. I might track that down and watch <laughs> it. Um, I'll look it up while David's doing the, uh, the guest star bio to see if it's streaming anywhere. It's about a, a couple from New York who moves to the country and, and finds a dark and ritualistic secret. So, you know, with Betty Davis, yeah, I, I might. The secret is Betty Davis. <laughs> no, I think she's the New York couple, but I'm not sure. Oh, really? I just assumed that she was like the witch or something. <laughs> well, stay tuned. Harvest Home to me sounds like a a catalog that sells candles. I was about to say, a candle scent? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, that's the, that's the dark secret. They're making candles. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Rudolf Nureyev. Ballet dancer, choreographer, Soviet defector. Born in 1938 to a Muslim Tartar family in the Soviet Union, young Rudolf fell in love with dance early on. He trained at a local school and toured with a local company, but the post-war disruptions to Soviet life left him unable to enter a major ballet school until 1955, when he was 17 years old, which is really quite late for someone who goes on to have the kind of career he had. He quickly rose in the ranks of the Kurov Ballet and soon became known as one of the Soviet Union's best dancers. Before long, he was under the watchful eye of the KGB, suspicious of his relationships with foreigners and his trips to gay bars while performing in Paris. In some ways, they were right to be suspicious. In 1961, he defected, and within a week, he joined the Grand Ballet du Marquis de Cueva. Incidentally, he was sort of the first like major celebrity defection, and it kind of kicked off a wave of those. So historically, that was pretty important. While on tour in Denmark, he met and fell in love with Danish ballet dancer Eric Brun. The two would remain a couple, somewhat on again, off again, until Eric's death in 1986. In the 1960s, Rudolf joined the Royal Ballet, and he became an international superstar. 
and his star further rose when he paired with prima ballerina Dame Margot Fontaine. In the 1970s, he made many appearances with the National Ballet of Canada and the American Ballet Theater, so by the time he was on The Muppet Show, North American audiences had ample opportunities to see him on stage. Of course, he had also appeared on his share of variety shows and talk shows, as well as a handful of movies. He was also part of 70s celebrity culture, socializing with the likes of Liza Minnelli, Gore Vidal, and Andy Warhol at Studio 54 and beyond, until he eventually grew tired of that scene. In 1982, he was granted Austrian citizenship, ending two decades of statelessness since he defected from the USSR. In 1983, he became the head of the Paris Opera Ballet, where he stayed until 1989. In 1987, he was finally allowed back into Russia by Mikhail Gorbachev in order to visit his dying mother. In 1989, he finally performed there in Leningrad. That same year, he started a North American tour of The King and I, which I did not see, but I remember seeing a lot of television commercials for. And it was kind of a big deal at the time because it was the tour that reclaimed the show after a generation of Yul Brynner doing every single production. I'm just going to say this now instead of later. He is not a natural actor. Well, The King and I doesn't really call for natural acting. I mean, no and yet. Right. Perhaps, you know, by this would have been more than a decade later. Sure, sure. Maybe Maybe he got some coaching. By this point, he had been living with HIV for a number of years, and his health took a turn for the worse in the early 90s. He died in January of 1993 at the age of 54. I think it's hard to understand the impact for those of us who didn't live through his heyday, but he's credited as really elevating the role of the male dancer in ballet and bridging the gap between ballet and modern dance, a crossover that's pretty common today but was very rare in the 1960s. Wikipedia describes him as almost a mirror image of Gene Kelly, who brought balletic influence into popular modern dance. Nureyev returned the favor to bring modern dance influence into ballet. Do any of you have sort of previous impressions of Nureyev? I don't, but I mean, just to, to follow on what you were just saying, like the something I found so interesting about the the way he's treated in the episode, not even him really, but like one of the jokes is we'll, we'll get to it, but like Sam is so excited that he's coming. And then like one of the jokes is, is he's my favorite opera singer. And just the idea of that landing with an audience now, like, like a, with like the Muppet show audience, I'm trying to think of like an equivalently famous ballet dancer to this kind of mass audience today. And I don't think they quite, I don't think we have that. Right. And so that's certainly not a male dancer. Yeah. Even a female, I mean, like, you know, like somebody like Misty Copeland, like who is famous, but not a household name. Right. Like, I don't think my dad who, you know, watches a lot of TV and is like up on pop culture. I don't think he knows who Misty Copeland is. Right. And I, and I like, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty with it. And I, I, I barely like, I'm, I'm proud of myself for pulling the name Misty Copeland just now. So like, I mean, I know her cause I saw her on Broadway and on the town. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, I think like it, that's just, that's just notable to, to me. And I, I, I thought about watching the episode and then it, uh, I was struck by it just now listening to the bio. Yeah. Nureyev is a name that prior to watching this episode for our podcast was purely anecdotal history to me. Like, I could sort of vaguely conjure in my mind what he looked like, but like, you know, he's it's one, of, one of those names like Caruso is, is like, like somebody who's like held up as a like historical epitome of a particular artist. So it was a, a wild experience to see a historical figure in my mind, very much humanized. And it's funny. I think for us, we probably have the awareness of Mikhail Baryshnikov that, People 
10 years older than us or certainly 20 years older than us had of Nureyev. And I think Baryshnikov is probably the last of the kind of crossover famous ballet dancers. Uh, important Dark Secret of Harvest Home update before we get things started. Uh, <laughs> Betty, Betty Davis played Widow Fortune, so uh, you were right, uh, David. Uh, it also featured Rosanna Arquette, Donald Pleasance, Tracy Gold of Growing Pains, later fame, and Renee Aubergenois, among others. Um, it is not streaming. The DVD is not available on Amazon.com or either the New York Public Library or Queen's Library. So sadly, we will not be watching it. A trip to the Paley Center it is. If anyone <laughs> if anyone has a lead on where I can watch The Dark Secret of Harvest House, please let me know. Uh, Michal, we know you found it problematic. <laughs> what else did you think of this episode? I thought this was a journey. Um, it made me feel a lot of feelings. If you can set aside the, uh, boy howdy, this was made in another era feelings, then all the other feelings were pretty good. I mean... Yeah, I love that as much as the, the Muppets whole shtick in this episode is that they're trying to rise to meet the cultural level of Rudolf Nureyev, he's responding by being perfectly happy to play in their playground and be part of the troupe and play along with all their gags. It's it's a good time, other than the stuff that is not. I love this episode. I th- There are problematic things. We're going to talk about them. I, I will be critical of them, but I... I the backstage and the onstage are completely integrated. Rudolf Nureyev is, I mean, not only game, I think he was actually really, really driving the bus in terms of what he's doing here. And even at its most awkward, I am so weirdly charmed <laughs> by like everything, except for something that is not problematic that I, I just actually dislike. <laughs> so we'll get to it. I'll, I won't spoil it. But yeah, I don't know. I love it. It's it's your bets. it's one of my favorites so far, which which was actually a surprise. David, I don't think I saw this as a child because I think if I had seen this as a child, it would have been deeply formative for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about why later. As anyone who's been paying attention this season has probably figured out, I have quickly become very much a fan of the episodes that are directed by Philip Casson. This is one of them. I just think he brings a, a more inventive eye to how to shoot the Muppets and therefore like what we can do with them. And I think that helps elevate this episode quite a bit. So I don't think it's one of my all time favorites, but it was a good time. You know, whatever misgivings we have about some particular choices. And not just shooting the Muppets, but also filming ballet, which is a whole other art and a whole other direction to have to orient yourself to showing your real way of doing ballet on a properly sized stage with another dancer that's they, they knew how to film that too and make it look exciting and interesting. I mean, and we'll get to this, but like the the challenge having having talked about happy feet in which we don't see his feet, like shooting someone actually tap dancing and seeing their feet while shooting Muppets who have no feet. Like there's a lot going on here. It's really, Wait, Muppets don't have feet? What? I mean, sometimes they do, but like <laughs> shooting dance well is really hard. Shooting dance well when you're combining an actual dancer and puppets is I would imagine even harder and and it's it is done here that's that's where I'm going with that anyway Christy what did you think of this episode um this might be my favorite of the season so far yay yeah Someone agrees with me oh a hundred percent it's somehow high concept and low concept at the same time and that's so satisfying to me and also like Nureyev's 
willingness to look doofy is so shocking. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just something to behold. It, it reminds me of what I usually tell people when they ask about my experiences with yoga. So, okay. So I... <laughs> I love yoga. I've done yoga for several years at this point. I am spectacularly mediocre at best at yoga. I look real goofy doing it. But the magic of yoga for me is that it doesn't matter. Like I, I see as much benefit from the doing it a, as a yoga master does because I bother to show up and enjoy myself. And I feel like that's exactly what Nureyev is doing. Like he, It's the ultimate template for a Muppet Show guest. You show up, you do something weird, and it pays off. You might look like a ding-dang fool, but it pays off. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Do we feel like he asked to do, to, to look doofy? Like, that's my impression, is that he, he yeah. came in and was like, I don't want to do ballet, or I want to do ballet, like, as comedy, right? Like, that's that's the impression. I, I assume so. Yeah. Well, yeah. supposedly he asked to dance with Miss Piggy, which I, am, I imagine he was not picturing being especially balletic. Right, right. All right, well, let's get, in, let's get into it. Rudolph Nureyev, uh, Rudolph Nureyev, 15 seconds, Mr. Nureyev. Uh-huh. I knew he was too smart to show up. <laughs> Scooter gives a little sideways grimace to the camera, which I didn't even know that puppet could do, but it's beautiful. Uh, there's <laughs> no movement on the yay evolution front at the beginning of the episode, but we get a little treat at the end. So let us have a warm thank you for our very special guest star, the incomparable Rudolph Nureyev! <laughs> it's even cuter because Kermit's wearing a tiny top hat that's perched on the back of his head. <laughs> I love head. the tiny top hat. <laughs> it's so cute. And it's not gravity holding it on. It must be a lot of Velcro and hope. I don't know. Statler and Waldorf in the opening sing along with the theme song. It's time to get things started. <laughs> Everybody's so happy to be here this episode. Gonzo and his trumpet, meanwhile, uh, again attempt to inflate this little green balloon. And this time Gonzo succeeds and he inflates this little three-tiered balloon into a little green snowman thing. Or maybe into a little snowman with a boob for a head. I Yeah. Or, or just a balloon. <laughs> or, I mean, dancer's choice. The balloon also keeps inflating on its own. Like after he stops blowing into the trumpet, the balloon keeps going. <laughs> Magic. This is the same balloon that we saw last week, I think, that didn't inflate, right? Yes, I believe yeah. so. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. Backstage this week, Sam the Eagle is incredibly enthusiastic about finally getting some culture at last onto the Muppet Show. To have the brilliant, talented Rudolf Nureyev on our show. <laughs> He's my favorite opera singer. Uh, tonight's guest star is one of the world's great masters of ballet, Mr. Rudolf Nureyev. What, what, what? Are you sure it's ballet, not opera? Positive. Six of one, half dozen the other. Culture is culture. Go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but here to get things started is Dr. Teeth and the electric... What, Dr. Teeth? <laughs> Sam, I, I know I promised you a very cultural show, but don't worry, you see, they're they're playing a minuet and they have promised to be very classy. Can't go wrong with a minuet. Sam is not only enthusiastic, he has decorated backstage. There are garlands and bouquets everywhere. Everyone is wearing tuxes and white ties, and Sam is lining people up for inspection and making sure everyone is acting with dignity, and that Kermit has washed his flippers. And uh, every time something remotely uncultural happens, Sam engages his appalled mode. So when a, a stray human enters in his street clothes, Sam is not having it, and he throws the guy out. 
Remember, when Mr. Nureyev arrives, mm -hmm. we must be dignified. We must be respectful. Here. Not for long, you are yeah. not. We are waiting for Mr. Nureyev. I'll handle this. Get out of here, you freak. You hit me. You weirdo, get out. Go, go. Who do these punk kids think they are? That one thinks he's Rudolph Nureyev. Yeah, I don't know how to describe his outfit. Um, Fabulous? Sure. He, he looks very stylish. He also unzips this little sideways jacket and then reveals a sweater underneath, but it looks like he's getting into his Spider-Man costume. <laughs> it read to me, and I think this is also how it's described at the Muppet Wiki, maybe, but maybe I'm making that up. It read to me as a like a motorcycle outfit, and then I realized the second I watched it, he is neither wearing nor carrying a helmet. He has like a really cute little cap on, but I guess also it's the 70s. Maybe he just wasn't wearing a helmet. He's also carrying like a crumpled up brown paper bag so i don't know what that was meant to be or indicate that's his dance belt <laughs> right <laughs> so I, yeah i don't know why i just immediately went to motorcycle from it it's not Isn't leather it has that it, it is leather isn't it is it maybe it's not black leather right um, no it's, i think it's like a brown leather it gives off that sort of like mod quality of the 70s right uh you know it's it's slim cut with with angles it's, a lot of I mean, it's, it's very hot yeah um and like <laughs> obviously ballet dancers ride motorcycles has yeah. the sam scene center stage best movie ever made fortunately for sam rudolph nureyev doesn't seem to hold grudges and unfortunately for sam nureyev is only too pleased to play to the muppet show's idea of culture and what ballet may i ask is the incomparable mr nureyev going to perform uh, Swine Lake. Culture. Yes, culture. Dignity at last. Cl Swine Lake? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, in the classic ballet Swine Lake, a beautiful princess has been turned into a pig by the wicked magician Trichinosis. <clears throat> uh, unfortunately, the handsome prince, there's a handsome prince in this too, the handsome prince hasn't heard about the change. If you've seen anything about this episode, you've probably seen a photo of this bit. This is where Rudolf Nureyev dances with a full-body pig puppet in a tender pork de do. <laughs> we will have lots to say about this number later. At the end of the episode, even though he's already apologized a couple times, Sam will find Nureyev another couple of times to apologize. So here he's found him in the dressing room. I just want to apologize for the disgusting things the frog has forced you to do on this show. The, the frog did not force him. The frog didn't force me. What? No, I wanted to do that. And it was fun. <gasps> I can't believe that I'm speaking to the real Rudolf Nureyev. Does that mean you're going to throw me out again? While they've been talking, Nureyev has been changing behind the pink divider in the dressing room. And then when he emerges, he's all dolled up in a tux and he tap dances us into the finale, which horrifies Sam, even though he has also forced everyone to wear tuxes. So now they all match. But I guess Sam holds ballet dancers to a higher standard, you know, dance belt or bust. I mean, I don't think it's about the outfit. I think it's about the style of dance. 
Well, it is, but he he actually reacts to the outfit before he has any idea what's coming. I mean, he also is reacting to to Nereo saying that he had fun. I don't want to go too d- deep into this, but right there's this. This is, I think, the most that we've seen of Sam ever, right so far, and it is kind of an interesting character study of Sam, where right he's he's faking the whole thing, right? Like he has, right, this, he don't know shit, right? He he literally knows nothing, including. You know, he has this vision of what a ballet dancer should be, and and like, of course, there are ballets that are done in tuxes, mm-hmm. you know, in in sailor suits, in like whatever. I know almost nothing about ballet, and I know that. So, you know, I think he is he's like, oh, f- finally, you're gonna do, you're gonna properly dance, and he comes out in a tux, and that alone is shocking to Sam because he actually doesn't have any fucking idea what he's talking about, and I think that's actually. If they've given it this much thought, it's actually a great character beat, and I really like it. It's funny, too, because according to Wikipedia, uh, there was a memorable incident relatively early in Nureyev's career where he was upset because he was performing in a ballet of Don Quixote where customarily his character would wear pants instead of tights and he wanted to wear tights and he refused to go on for 40 minutes until they let him dance in tights. <laughs> huh. uh, although actually apparently he lost that battle and after 40 minutes they convinced him to go on in, in pants but then in future performances they allowed him to wear the tights well <laughs> i don't know man artists are crazy what a hill to die on let's hear sam's last interaction of the episode with rudolf Nureyev. This has been a very different experience for me. <laughs> Mr. Nureyev, I just want you to know that I am sorry. You are sorry you threw me out? No, I'm sorry I ever let you back in. <laughs> this has been shocking. Oh, cool it, Baldy. <laughs> Again, not a natural actor, <laughs> but I, I do enjoy that. You know, before we say goodbye to talking about this sequence, we really need to address Sam's sleeveless tuxedo. <laughs> yes. He has very high standards for everybody else, and also his tuxedo is a muscle shirt. It's very Chippendales. His wings could go into sleeves. Yeah, or or covered with a jacket. Or a cape. Not impossible. Or, or, or yeah, a cape. Better. Yeah. Hmm. It's just weird for someone so concerned with everyone else's appearance that he does look like he's about to go work a bachelorette party. I wonder if they tried and it looked super weird because of the, the shape the sleeves would have to be. I mean, a cape is a great idea, but I, mm. I'm i trying to like imagine what the sleeves would look like, and I, I bet it looked really funky. So this week we have music, both highbrow and lowbrow, as befits an evening of quote-unquote culture, we start very firmly in the classical realm. Hey, hey what's this bummer called again? Minuet G major. Uh, you ought to send it back to the miners. Yeah, if I knew we were going to do this, I'd have just stayed home and sent in my suit. <laughs> animal's not going to make it, man. Well, I think he's going to freak. If he goes, I go with him. Yeah, so 
So this is, they, they say Minuet in G major is actually Minuet in A major from Luigi Baccarini's String Quartet in E. It's the third movement. And uh, Luigi Baccarini was uh, born in 1743. So extreme shout out to the public domain. Um, <laughs> he was a- Italian. He was known as the greatest cellist in Europe in his time. And he did the bulk of his work composing music for the Royal Court of Spain. Haters tend to call him Haydn's wife (laughs) because of similarities in their work, Hmm. which seems both rude and misogynistic, but sure. And yeah, if, if this piece sounds familiar, it's because it's used very stereotypically as this is what a a snooty piece of music sounds like in movies. Uh, I found a a piece about that phenomenon in the Harvard Crimson from 2013 called the most used and abused classical pieces uh, written by Will Holub Mormon. And he said, poor Baccarini, when he wrote the celebrated minuet by back in 1771, how could he have known that it would turn into the go-to piece for directors looking to make fun of classical music. You can hear the minuet all over the place. As Ferris Bueller walks into a snooty Chicago restaurant in Ace Ventura, when nature calls and in both adaptations of the lady killers, it's even in D three, the mighty ducks for God's sake. However, the song is brilliantly utilized in the form of a Nigel Tufnell guitar solo at the end of heavy duty. And this is spinal tap the first and last time Baccarini gets turned up to 11. I'm glad you read that sentence. Thank you. Yeah. I had never encountered the name Luigi Baccarini before. And then as I dug, I'm like, oh, it's because it, it's a trope. It's a joke. Also, we'll hear this piece of music again in season five. Is this a piece that also gets played in like the classical repertoire? Or is it only a joke now? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I would assume so because it hasn't like fallen into total obscurity. But I, I, I do think it appears more in this jokey context than it does in, you know, celebrations of music it feels like maybe something that would be taught yeah right like a like a like a school piece as opposed to a philharmonic piece i don't i have no idea i just think this is an excellent deployment of the mayhem like it's so funny i just i love that it gives them an opportunity to talk and show their personalities but also i think the piece really works in their style both before and after animal kicks in big fan it's musically interesting, but God, that that point when Floyd says, animal's not going to make it, man, and they just like zoom in on the animal's face. <laughs> <laughs> Kills me. I, I love it so much. And I love that. Should have sent it back to, to the miners. I think that's my favorite line of the week. You know, the older I get, the more I appreciate good music. Yeah, what's that got to do with what we just heard? Nothing. Just thought I'd mention it. So our foray into... Uh, high art continues with some Mozart. Christy, we actually don't need you this week. Kermit took care of this for us. Uh, Now, in keeping with our tone of uh, culture and classicism, 
And to uh, kill time while we see if we still have a guest star, we proudly present the love duet from the third act of the Barber of Der Fledermoos uh, by Giuseppe Wagner, or, or Giuseppe Wagner, uh, whatever. <laughs> Can I share my deep embarrassment that... The first time I watched this, not only did I not recognize it as real opera, I didn't recognize it as real Italian. <laughs> like I was like, are they just like <laughs> making up gibberish words? <laughs> and why that is doubly embarrassing is not only did I study Italian in college, but I also produced Don Giovanni <laughs> or the operatic stage in college. So like, no, I don't know, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, n- not as embarrassing, but I, I like Sam. I, I actually. Took him at his word that it was at least Deflator Mouse. It, it is not. It is not. No. It, I it should have is. clued into that fact that he says the barber of Deflator Mouse, which I, I know enough to know is not a thing, but still. Yeah, none of the words that came no. out of Kermit's mouth were correct. No. Uh, <laughs> so the, this is uh, this is from uh, Mozart's opera Don Giovanni from 1787. A lot of uh, music from the 1700s this week. And it's a duet between Don Giovanni and Zerlina. It's sort of like a seduction duet. And I I had never seen Don Giovanni. I'm not an opera person. I, I will own that. I, I'm for, which is funny because it's like a musical theater composer. So like you would think that like, it's like, oh, it's a close cousin. Yeah, no, no it's not, 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 not for me. Not for me. Nor I. But I, I did learn that there is a character named Donna Elvira in Don Giovanni. And my dog's name is Elvira. So that was exciting for me. And now she has a title. She is a lady. <laughs> of the stage. I'm a little disappointed that they, they didn't um, go with a, a mouse or a moose joke or bring back the bat from the Judy Collins episode because later mouse, in fact, means bat. But I'm also, I cannot be mad about these pigs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a really impressive vocal performance from Frank Oz. Oh, yeah. Which is particularly amazing because he doesn't always carry a tune so well as Piggy, as we'll hear later in this episode. And in particular, when he has to sing in her highest register, like there's that note in the Muppet movie, that one note in Never Before, Never Again, that just uh-huh. is like fingernails on a chalkboard. But at least now hearing this, I know that, okay, maybe that was actually a comedic choice and not just Paul Williams wrote a song that Frank Oz couldn't sing. <laughs> It's also worth noting that even though they're singing a duet from Don Giovanni, they are dressed in the like Viking regalia of Wagner's ring cycle. So like everything about this is like stereotyping, faking it till you make it. Like nobody knows what they're doing as far as the high culture portion of (laughs) this show goes this week. And it's delightful. And I think we're going to see these costumes again too. I would hope there's a, so. There's a there's a Viking pig number in our future, I believe. So that's something <laughs> to look forward to. Well, there's definitely a, a very famous Viking pig number in season five. Yes, yes, all that is coming. the The conceit of this number is that Piggy and Link are trying to upstage each other and then get yoinked off the stage, not with a cane this time, but they get hoisted up by a giant magnet. At which point, you can see all of Link's toes because he's not wearing <laughs> shoes. <gasps> And and he has people feet. Ah, uh, sorry. Not that hooves on a Muppet pig would be better. I don't know. I don't know what I want out of Muppet pig feet. I want. I know what I want out of Muppet pig feet. I want to never see them and never think about them. I mean, we've discussed Piggy's shoes before, so it does make sense that they would have humanoid feet. 
Because how else would she wear those? Yeah, I wasn't planning Again, to think about it. I want to think feet. about it. I know that she can roller skate, but I don't <laughs> want to think about what her feet look like inside those roller skates. Inside Gregory Hines' roller skates, no less. And I will say again, how many teats? Nope. Nope. You nope. know, there's nothing like Grand Opera. Yep, and that was nothing like it. Oh. I'm with you, fellas. We promised that we would talk about the balletic performance of this episode, and it is Swine Lake, or rather Swan Lake, as performed by a human and pig. <laughs> Just while we're still in music, this synth situation is wild. <laughs> it's the 70s, man. I know. Yeah, it's very Swan Lake on ice. But the music is Tchaikovsky. It's from 1877. Yeah, the, I, I didn't find anything particularly notable or exciting about the music. I mean, it's Swan Lake, right? It's Swan like Lake, it's, yeah. Like, yeah. Even if you don't know anything about ballet, like it's Swan Lake. Yeah. So let's talk about the puppet. Yeah. <laughs> Nureyev came into this and really wanted to dance with Miss Piggy. And the Muppet folks were like, that's not really possible, at least not in the in the classical ballet sense. So the compromise was they they built this full body pig puppet, um, who is not Miss Piggy, but a different, a different pig. And which is great. And and I, I actually, there's a lot that I really like about this number, but the the bummer of this number, and I, I think we all agree because we've discussed it off mic, is that you know the 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 joke the joke of it is he's he's being pursued by a pig, right? I mean, in, in Swan Lake, right? Like sh- she turns into a swan and a human and a swan, and now it's a human and a pig. But what that turns into in practicality is uh, an extended fat joke, and that's that doesn't feel great. And a lot of the comedy just sort of come, you know, comes from like doing ballet stuff when the, the the ballerina is much larger than than the male partner, and you know, there's lifts and and there's the pig gets thrown around and like it and it she lands on top of him, it, yeah. Like and it it's a pig, so it's sort of okay, but it's still ultimately like we all understand that it's a fat joke and. And that's the part that is that I don't like. Yeah, but it's pretty clear, like. and it's it's text. It's not subtext. No, like yeah. he looks over, and it's like, oh no, this ballerina is too big. Yeah, and like literally tosses her away several times. Yeah, and also has the face of a literal pig. <laughs> like you could, I could be a little generous to it, but it's still, ugh. it's a lot. It's a lot, and yet the pig. I don't know if it's fair to call it a puppet because it's really a costume. Although there are times, it's actually, it's a similar bit to the Rudy Moreno episode, where there are times when when there's no one in the costume and it is treated as a puppet. But the face doesn't have any puppetry elements to right, it in the way true. that, like, Big Bird is a costume, but also a puppet. Right. This is just a costume. And yet, it is so beautifully rendered. And there's something specifically about the face and the way the mouth is formed that even though nothing is moving, it seems to 
change expression and emotion just by the way the dancer moves the head. It's really fascinating. It, it's mass. It's mask work, right? Like it's you know it's all yeah. those things you can do with a tilt of the head. And I mean to get the to sort of get the the fat part out of the way, like fat suits, I would argue never look good. Even when they're not being used in service of a joke, uh, uh, I'm thinking of like a current example of um, Linda Tripp on American Crime Story right now. Uh, that maybe I mean that sort of is being used in service of a joke, but you you know what I mean. Like fat suits never look good. But there's something about like the the in Muppet World, <laughs> like the costume looks sort of amazing and sort of real. It doesn't quite look like like her arms and legs. Like they don't quite look like a Muppet. They they don't look human either. They're like in this weird in-between Uncanny Valley space that actually like works really well and moves in a really interesting way that I was sort of fascinated by. That actually made it feel like not fat phobic. That made it feel like, oh, look at this beautiful pig dancing beautifully, which is a segue to what I loved about it. That like Nurev is actually doing, Nurev and the dancer inside the pig costume are doing like full-on actual ballet that is also comedic. And that's what I actually love about it. Fat joke aside. Yeah. We should talk about the, the dancer in the costume. So the, the pig was played by a dancer named Graham Fletcher and he had other Muppet adjacent experience later. He, he was one of the people working on the, the giant Audrey two in the movie version of little shop of horrors, but, but he was also a dancer. He, he played Mr. Mistopheles in cats in, on the West end, which is very much a dance role. Like a, a hard, I mean, the, hard all the cats is hard, but that's role. like a particularly balletic yeah. jumping twirling. And of course, shares a choreographer with the Muppet Show. It's true. It does, but not this episode. This is a Norman Maine episode. Oh. Yeah. And Graham Fletcher also had other Muppet costume roles that'll come up. Yeah. Which I, w- I was a little startled at first to learn like, oh, it's a dude inside this costume. But also then picturing like a, a tiny ballerina trying to lug around the costume. Like, oh, it... it- <laughs> Made yeah. more sense, but he like he is fully on point a couple times, which yeah. is which I mean men can do, but it is you know it's it's a move that is more associated with women. There's also a moment when um, the dancer is out of the costume, and uh, and its feet are attached to Nereo's feet, and he is fully dancing and puppeteering the pig. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I also love that you know so often on the Muppet Show they'll do a camera edit that just seems super obvious and fake, but here there's. A moment where the unmanned pig costume falls to the ground, and then suddenly there's someone inside the costume and it's getting up, and it just it the effect worked really well for me. Like it, it did not seem like an obvious edit, and it was really cool. Yeah, the way they filmed it was cool. The way they choreographed it was cool. I was really impressed by the the dancer inside the puppet, and I was also impressed by Nureyev. I wasn't expecting him to necessarily be a funny physical comedian, but he was. And I know it's part of his job to express a whole range of emotions with his face and his physicality, but I wasn't expecting him to be this funny. I just picture Juliet Prowse at home watching this and being like, why couldn't they figure out how to shoot dancing for my episode? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Juliet, you should have figured out how to be funny. Little from column A, little from column B. Also, for you Sandy Duncan heads out there, uh, there's a a swan like... Connection. She was the voice of the prince's mother in the animated version of Swan Lake, the Swan Princess. So if you're playing the drinking game version of our podcast, (laughs) drink once for the Sandy Duncan connection. So something's missing in this week's UK spot. (laughs) Yeah. 
I've got two wheels on my tricycle and four toes on each foot. I've got six days in my week and up with this I will not put. I'm a bath without a plug and I'm a handle with no jug. I'm a kiss without a hug unless you're near me. I've got three strings on my violin and I'm an only twin. Something's missing, something's missing, something's... If I have any regrets about doing this podcast, it's that I can now clock a Paul Tracy number without looking it up. <laughs> 50 yards away. Yep. It's Paul Tracy o'clock, you guys. So this song is also from Paul Tracy's album, Something Else. I actually recommend looking up the original on this one because there's something sort of lost in translation. There's a very sort of square yet in the way that the Muppets render a lot of these numbers. And it's a little more mellifluous in the Paul Tracy version. There's also a middle, I guess I would call it a B section, in which, to be a total nerd, he wrote it in the whole tone scale. So he's like, get it? Get it? Notes are missing, which I'm like, most listeners are not going to get that, <laughs> Paul Tracy. I, and and I, this is not speculation on my, on my part. I actually, uh, on his YouTube page, he provided commentary on the song. And he said, my mother lived in England, and one day she was reading the newspaper and saw the name of a racehorse. It was Something's Missing. Oh, she said, that sounds like a good title for a song for Paul. Jesus. So she sent me the title, and I wrote the song that goes with it. Later, she wrote to me again and told me that something's missing still never won a single race. Uh, the, the Muppets used this song and did a really good job of showing things missing. Up with this, I will not put, is a reference to Churchill, who went out of his way not to end a sentence with a preposition. Man, that's a thing that plagues me. I understand that deeply. Mm. Uh, my brother Andrew played the delightful bass clarinet on this recording. He also played the Portuguese guitar here. Do you notice the whole tone scale in verse three? That's a musical joke because as the lyric says, there are six notes in a whole tone scale. Commitment to the bit. Cool story, bro. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's charming in its way. I'm, I'm, I'm being harsh. Um, I was going to say, I didn't hate this. I'm, I, I get, I, I am no Paul Tracy defender, but <laughs> I, I found this kind of sweet and charming. And I really love when the wife appears she kind of looks like him and she has glasses like he does. And it was just like a sweet little character detail. I don't know. I just found the whole thing really, really kind of cute. I mean, obviously it's fine to excise it. It's the UK clip and it makes sense that this is the one that you would drop from the episode, but I don't know. It seemed no better or worse than any other like standalone Muppet song to me. I I mean, this, I found the song mostly dull. It's the staging for me, like a, a which we didn't really talk about, like so, like all these things are literally missing. Like every, he's he only does he fully have half a face? No, it's his face. On one half of his face, he has a beard. And on the other half, he doesn't. But on the half, he doesn't have a beard. He does have an eye. But on the ha- bearded right. half, he doesn't have an eye. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, there's all kind of yeah. So he looks real creepy, a unnerving. Yeah, and there's and a then, faceless Mona Lisa behind him, which is also understandably creepy. Yeah, I just find it very creepy. But yeah. then when his wife appears, everything, everything comes old. back. I understand, but like, I, but that takes a long time to happen. And do, so, I do just, we have to go on that journey with him? Like, 
Like we we got it. I they just agreed that it's very sweet. I mean, that's and I'm also more used to just hearing the song and this the visuals were new to me, but I I mean they they complement each other. It becomes very sweet, yes. But before it becomes very sweet, I was deeply creeped out by it. <laughs> so the payoff didn't didn't pay off enough for me. They should have made more things missing so that you would have felt more satisfied when they appeared. Uh, what what else is missing? I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm gets, with you. He, he gets it back when his wife shows up, so it's fine. But I just, yeah, it wasn't for me. What you don't know is that for the first half of the song, he only has one testicle. I was waiting for I, That's this. what I was saying. You don't have to actually <laughs> say it. You don't have to make the double entendre a single entendre or whatever. Quick, let's move on to something less creepy. Oh. Oh, wait. Oh, um, no. Really can't stay. It's cold outside. I've got to go away. It's cold outside. <laughs> Evening has been. Oh, so I hope your hands are cold as Wow, wow, wow. Oof. Yep, yep. That is a thing that happened on television in, in the towels. real world. Whew. Okay, so where to begin, where to begin? Yeah, so it's, it's Baby It's Cold Outside, which probably doesn't need a whole lot of introduction per se. It, it's very infamous at this moment in time. Uh, it And it, part of that is just a, a shift in context over the years so it's a frank lesser song it's not from a musical it's just a standalone song uh, that he wrote uh, in 1944 and it became popular five years later in a movie called neptune's daughter and it, it's not a christmas song but it because it's about cold weather it has sort of fallen into the christmas song rotation over time and the background of the song is actually kind of charming. Frank Lesser wrote it to sing with his wife at, at a housewarming party, like at, at one party, and they sang it to indicate to people that it was time to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I like it in that context. Yeah, there's a need there. Yeah. And it was such a hit that they kept getting invited to parties for years to do the song and his wife actually felt betrayed when it popped up in a movie she said i felt as betrayed as if i'd caught him in bed with another woman she would not be his last wife nope nope she would not (laughs) (laughs) and yeah it it was actually a a replacement song in the movie neptune's daughter they were originally going to use the song I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China, but the studio censors thought that that was too racy. And so they replaced it with Baby's Cold Outside. And subsequently, the song won the 1949 Oscar for Best Song. So drink again, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. I, I, I hesitate to call myself a defender of this song, um, but I, I'm sort of a defender of this song. That being said, 
this performance understands the, the like now accepted modern context right. of the song <laughs> better this than is the worst case scenario version of the song. Yes. Yeah. I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I am a, a defender of the song largely and, and I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes as a really good essay um, by a woman. And I don't, we don't need to sit here and listen to me, a man defend the song. Um, but right there, there is a, although I'm about to do it, I guess that skip ahead 30 seconds. <laughs> if you don't want to hear me, Defend the song. There's a there's a, like there's a read of the song where they are both knowingly flirting and playing a game. Yes. And or that the culture will not allow her to say, Yes, I would like to spend the night. And so 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 he is giving her plausible deniability. Yes. <laughs> and they both know what they're doing. That is a defense of the song. However, <laughs> that's not what's happening here. No at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. So they're they're in a like a, a, a steam room and a in a bathhouse uh <laughs> proof yeah i i i texted a, a a friend about this particular performance and he said he's like i have seen gay porn that was not as gay as miss piggy <laughs> 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 flinging herself at uh rudolf nureyev in a steam room in a towel in a towel should. he yes. is in a towel and a towel that is constantly slipping as he is maneuvering around and like spreading his legs. Uh-huh. When I say that this would have been very important to me as a child, this is what I'm referring to. <laughs> I want to let's let's talk about like the, the design a little bit because I actually think I think there's two towels. I think for most of the number he is in a towel that is very heavily attached, and then and then there's a cut and and the towel that comes off you know replaces it. So like the, there's like some actually remarkable like costume work happening just on that towel alone. <laughs> Look, if you were to say, watch this on a large TV in slow motion, you will see that he is wearing underwear. Yes. Uh, I assume. I'm not saying that I've tested this theory. <laughs> of You're not going to just freeze frame on his leg emerging from the pool. Is that, um, that's where I would stop. For science. The other thing about the design is that like, there's no need for there to be water on this set, but there is. <laughs> I was relieved that he didn't sing the Hey, What's in This Drink lyric, but it would have been very Muppety to make something out of the little shallow pool that they're splashing. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad they cut that because it wouldn't have made any sense at all. But like, Unless they had made it make sense, unless he like points to the water and is like, what's in this drink? It's just so interesting because like, there's, there's been episodes where I'm like, wow, they really cheaped out on that set. And then there's this where there was no reason at all to put water on the stage. Yeah. And to have to film a steam room. Well, the sa- the sa- the sauna I get, like the sauna is part of the joke, and also to put him in a towel. But the water itself does not need to be part of it because they don't use it. And actually, it seems like it would create a sound problem to have him splashing around. But oh well, they managed. I also want to mention that I learned that in the original score for this song, uh, the two parts are referred to as wolf and mouse. Well, that also undercuts the defense a little bit, doesn't it? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Yikes. I, yeah. But I, again, the if you heard a, a married couple, who one of whom wrote the song doing this at a party, that's totally different from like Michael Buble and whoever the fuck. Yeah. On Christmas radio. Oof. Yeah. It's been recorded uh, for like 400 times. <laughs> There's got to be like a randomizer somewhere where you can just like come up with like, you know, because some of those just like feel like you like pulled out of the hat. Like the one that I always think of is there's 
It's like Liza Minnelli and Alan Cumming on one of those. Uh, I have that too. right, yeah, and they, I, mean, I think um, Darren Chris and and um, Kurt, what the hell's his name, did it on Glee, uh, right? So like I've you know I've seen it done like there's various ways of like trying to get around it of like let's do let's make it two men let's gender swap it and I actually do appreciate that they gender swapped this one. Which of course they did, right? Like, of course, Picky's going to be the aggressor. I mean, it's not okay that like, she is <laughs> so not okay in this number. Like, he is he is climbing the walls to get away from her, <laughs> and yet he could crack her skull between his thighs. Like, a- <laughs> <laughs> wow! But he shouldn't have to, David. No, he should not. Wow. I mean, we we understand that there's a number coming between Piggy and Rudolph Nureyev because she discusses with Kermit how excited she is for a, a, a love duet, which, yeah. Kermit! Uh, yes, Miss Piggy. May I speak with you about our duet? Uh, what, is there something wrong with it? Wrong? Why, it's... <laughs> oh, it last him Sure, and passionately love duet between me and my Uh Well, you're you're not doing it with me. What? No, you're going to do it with Rudolph Nureyev. Come on! <laughs> and she runs over Kermit on her way to get to the stage, which I mean. This is not improved by knowing that she was planning on doing this with Kermit, whom she can easily overpower. Right. In a mature yeah. and We must love note play. that she's wearing a fetching green bathrobe over her towel during the scene with Kermit. Oh, yes. She's looking very stylish. And yet. And she, she dips him during that conversation and then drops him, which is also very funny. I mean, Piggy's doing a great job. And Rudolf Nureyev is also doing a great job. Like, I'm glad I watched it more than once so that I could appreciate that he's having a good time acting this. Yeah, because the first time through, I definitely was, well, I was not paying attention to his face, but also I was horrified. (laughs) (laughs) Much to Sam's relief, I'm sure things get back on track classiness wise. So yeah, this is a a Ralph bit. He's playing the piece Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy. It was written in 1890. Well, it was part of a piece called Sweet Bergamasque, which sounds like a thing that you'd say when you stub your toe in France. But no, Sweet Bergamasque, he wrote, in 1890 and then revised and it wasn't actually published until 1905 but it is in the public domain so let's hear it one last time for the public domain and it's a piece that has appeared in a lot of movies like it was famously in the george clooney oceans 11 uh underscoring uh the Bellagio fountain. And it was actually supposed to be in Fantasia. There was a a cut scene from Fantasia featuring this piece of music. And uh, before we get to the comedy of it all, I just want to say it is one of the most fun pieces in existence to play. So uh, Ralph is playing and Fozzie is trying to be helpful 
in his way first by uh, providing a, a missing candelabra and then trying to light it. Yeah. Muppets in open flame, not a favorite of ours. <laughs> Very I, stressful. I would like to, to fact check Fozzie bear on this. He hmm. says he's going to provide a candelabra, but he only provides a candlestick. Uh, yeah. Yes. That bothered me too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the best he could do. He I mean, not that something. I want him to have more candles at his. No, disposal. no, no. Considering he eventually takes a flamethrower to it. <sighs> it, it. It stresses me out every single time. Yeah. I mean, I, I was maybe even a little more worried. I wasn't worried that Fozzie was going to actually succeed at striking a match. But the fact that it looked like he was trying, you know, with an, an inch or two between him and his nose and the piano and a match in between them. <laughs> I was stressed. It was also like very daring to operate a flamethrower from within a Muppet. Like, like, I assume there's some trick to it. Like, uh, no, I think he has his hand. Like, uh, you know, Jim Henson had his hand in the Fozzie Muppet holding the flamethrower. And actually, I have no idea who which puppet tears were doing what because we've got, I guess, Jim as Rolf and Frank as Fozzie, and then four additional hands that need. Puppeteering, so God only knows who's doing what. Okay, so what's the difference between I, I know we're we're not a you know f- fire podcast, but what's the difference between a flamethrower <laughs> and a blowtorch? Like I thought it was a blowtorch. It's a, it's oh, a, oh, it's okay, a blowtorch. You're, you're right. right. It's a blowtorch. Yeah, I, I forgot I there was a, such a thing as a blowtorch. I only thought of flamethrower, but you're right. It does not change my feelings. Sure, so. sure. Yeah, no. It's like the more you said it, the more I was just like, wait, like flamethrowers, like that's like uh, like a like a weapon. weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah, fair enough. Like, if it had been an actual flamethrower, like, this would be referred to as that episode of The Muppet Show with the fucking flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so I don't know what a flamethrower is. I thought you were going to say... <laughs> you're it's not like a, a blowtorch behind a can of hairspray. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, we're not a fashion podcast, and then ask what it is that Fozzie's wearing around his neck. Because I, I guess a suit jacket wasn't working for Fozzie either, because he's just there in like a little bib or or a dicky. Is it a dicky? Yeah, yeah. I I think it qualifies as a dicky. Again, I'm, I have no expertise in that particular area, but well, we know from last season that Sam does not approve of dickies. So we absolutely end on a dapper note. He's stepping out of here to breathe an atmosphere that simply reeks with class. And we trust you will excuse his dust when he steps on that gas. Oh, I'll be there. Put it on my top hat. Tying up my white tie. Dancing in my tail. Yeah, top hat, white tie, and tails. Irving Berlin number. We're finally into the 20th century. I mean, I guess technically, uh, maybe it's cold outside. Brought us into the 20th century, but um, did it <laughs> <laughs> musically? Uh, if not in some totally. ways, yeah. Uh, th- so this is an Irving Berlin song from 1935 from Top Hat, which was a Fred Astaire movie, and we will hear this again in season four. I love this so much. <laughs> weirdly stilted accented uh Nerea of singing has big tacos putting on the ritz vibes and yes. i'm here for well, it 
not so much tacos putting on the Ritz, but but I also went there. This was all I could think of. Why don't you go where fashion sits? <laughs> and I, I clipped that with love because I really do love this. And I think he is having a great time. Oh, for sure. But he is not good at the singing or the acting. And it's funny how he's he's good at the dancing. And it's clear that he is able to do all of these individual tap dancing moves. And he needs to put so much effort into it because he doesn't move. He doesn't tap dance with the ease of a tap dancer. Yeah. He tap dances with the intent of a ballet dancer. He's so enthusiastic about all of it. Yeah. And his center of gravity isn't quite in the right place, but he's so happy to be there. I just love a musical number that starts in the dressing room and then moves through backstage on its way to ending on stage. Like I said before, this is a a Philip Casson specialty. Like he loves to use the space of the Muppet Theater in a way that the other director doesn't. So I just think it adds so much. And I'm such a sucker for a chorus line of Muppets in tuxes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've talked about how deeply imprinted Muppets Take Manhattan is on me. And I think that is probably why I always perk up when I see that kind of a setup. A little weird to have Nigel in the chorus line and super weird to have Menomina in the chorus line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that that one was a a real wake-up call. But yeah, that part where he's dancing down the stairs and all the Muppets are there backstage watching him is so great. Yeah, and just cheering him along on his journey to the stage. It's lovely. Now, this is like the 11 billionth Fred Astaire number that we've had this season. Clearly, uh, someone on the staff got it in their mind that that was a good source for Muppet songs, and they weren't wrong. Yeah. Uh, so if you're watching this and you're thinking like, I don't get it. Why does he gun down all the Muppets at the end? That's a direct <laughs> reference to how Fred Astaire does this number in Top Hat. By shooting um, everyone. <laughs> so why does Fred Astaire yeah. gun down all the Muppets at the end? <laughs> well, so it, it's it doesn't make any more sense in the context of Top Hat, except that it's just like a stylized number set on stage in front of a like stylized Eiffel Tower where Fred Astaire is dancing in front of a very large chorus of men all identically dressed in top hats and tails. Uh, this is famously the first time that Fred Astaire danced with a cane. And uh, so the finale to the number is he uses that cane to shoot down all the different chorus boys mimicking different kinds of guns with his taps until he finally... Uh, when the last guy dodges his make-believe gunfire, turns his cane into a fake bow and arrow, and gets him that way. Huh. Sure. I was so going for a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that idea itself was actually stolen from a Broadway flop that Fred Astaire had been in previously called Smiles. So a lot of history to fake gunning down your chorus with your cane. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, I wouldn't be me if I didn't make the pedantic note that I'm 99% sure that uh, Nereev is not wearing tap shoes. I'm huh. fine with this. I mean, he, I think he is, he is tap dancing well, and obviously everything is pre-recorded, but Gwen Verdon's off there somewhere. Never mind that jazz! Listen, turkey! What? Get out of show business? So just a tiny bit of show business to take care of before we end this episode. A single sketch. We have a vet's hospital sketch, and our patient is an adorable baby pig. Pretty nurse, who beeth our next patient? Why, this little piglet, sire. Not piglet, Hamlet. (laughs) Remember, we're doing Shakespeare here. Mm, Sounds more like bacon. Methinks we should take our leave. Why? Look at the time. 
Hey, the timing of the shrew. Are you calling me a shrew? If the shrew fits. Uh, the Muppets love bacon jokes. And they also are paying tribute to Shakespeare because culture is the theme of this episode. Some of these jokes are really a stretch, but it is fun to watch them all look in different directions when they ask for the time. They strike a very dramatic pose. It's a good time. Now that really offended me. I'm a student of Shakespeare. Uh, you were a student with Shakespeare. I can't imagine we have anything else to say about this episode, but here's your chance. I think there there are several contenders in this episode for the Of It's Time Award, but I will award the best dressed of the episode to Miss Piggy and worst dressed to Sam's muscle tuxedo shirt. My final thought is, given how successful the Muppets are with all of the different Fred Astaire numbers this season, you would think that the contemporary makers of Muppet products might look at that and say, golly gee, Fred Astaire did a lot of things in his career that the Muppets have not yet done. Maybe we should look to some of those numbers for future Muppet numbers. I don't know. Call me crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> More Muppets <laughs> and tuxedos. Let's get it. Now, wasn't that a cultural show? <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppet Turkey. We'll be back next week to discuss the Elton John episode with our guests, Mark Blankenship and Sarah D. Bunting. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppet Turkey or on the web at MuppetTurgy.com. Please spread the word and tell your friends about our podcast. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Tom Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Yay. Most episode is going to be <laughs> give you okay. a lot. So seeing also, as how oh go ahead oh or, go ahead go ahead I, I was going to take it to feet so you you should finish your thought <laughs> <laughs> we, we we can't stay away.